Hey, I'm Daniel, and welcome to the Milwaukee Chi Alpha Podcast. What you're going to get from this podcast is biblical encouragement for college students in Milwaukee. And if you don't fit that description, this can still be a good listen for you. What you're about to listen to is our sermon series called Sent. We're studying the book of Acts, the ordinary people who had an extraordinary story. So uh, tonight, um, is this is the first week of Advent. Um, Advent is a, an awesome time of discovering why Jesus came and celebrating his coming, but also celebrating that he will come again and longing for his coming again. And so as we journey of towards Christmas, these next 25 days, it's December 1st, these next 25 days, um, one thing I hope that you carry with you this year is it is it a disposition of expectation, that you would expect Jesus to come to you and to meet you where you are. That, I believe, is at the core of the gospel, and that's really where I want to get us to tonight, as we're in a series of acts. It just so happens that this message really connects well with the, the heart of Jesus' coming, um, and, and with Advent, one of the themes of Advent is joy. And we saw that in the passage, that there is joy that comes as his gospel comes and the kingdom comes to people, the result is joy. Joy. So we're going to talk about that and how, how we experience joy and how these people experience joy in the story and how it relates to today. So just kind of like recapping a little bit, right? We've been walking through the book of Acts two weeks ago, the week before Thanksgiving. Catherine preached on Acts chapter 7, if you remember that. Acts chapter 7 is a unique chapter because it's this really long sermon by this guy named Stephen who is one of the disciples of Jesus. He's actually a Hellenistic Jew, uh, or most likely was. Um, He's not one of the 12. He's one who was uh, raised up to meet the needs of the poor, but then he is filled with the Holy Holy Spirit and he preaches this message to these religious leaders who are accusing him of all kinds of things. And they are so angry with him that they kill him. And it breaks the, like, the thread, like so far up through Acts, is like people are angry with him, but they can't do anything about it. And there's like the people are, the, the early church is kind of like thriving, it's blowing up, right, in Jerusalem. But then Acts chapter 7, Stephen is, is killed. And, and there's this scattering that happens. And that's what's happening here, right? It's, it's, it's the curtain closes on the first movement of the church. And Acts chapter 8 is the opening curtain of the next movement here. And if you remember Acts 1, verse 8, we talked about it in the second week here. Acts 1, 8 says, Jesus said to his disciples before he rose or before he ascended to heaven, he, he told them, you will be my witnesses, right? The Holy Spirit will come on you and, and empower you, equip you to go to be my witnesses to Jerusalem and to all of Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, right? So that, that was... Luke, our author of Acts, he's giving us the framework of what this book is all about. It's a story of how the Holy Spirit helped send these people to all of this and and in obedience to what Jesus said they were going to do. And the first seven chapters has essentially been the first part of that command, right? They've been in Jerusalem. 
They've been in the city. They've been with ethnic Jews or even Hellenistic Jews were Jews, but were dispersed around the area and they were here together, right? So, so what's happened is, is the Jews have received the gospel, but now they've been, there's, there's persecution that's got, it's got real. Chapter 7, Stephen is killed for this gospel. And immediately there's a scattering. And we started, started the, the verse and Saul approved of the killing. That's verse 1. That's how it broke up uh, when, when early church fathers broke this up into verses. It wasn't originally that way. Um, but I felt like it was worth noting because it helps us remember what happened before. Something crazy happened. And now the church is respond, reacting to it. And there's a spreading that happens, a great spreading that happens um, as the gospel goes forth. Um, one other note here before we jump into our, our story. Um, Luke is our author of Acts. He wrote Luke and Acts, right? And in Acts, he uses a literary device. For those who are English people, you like literature, you might care about this. If you don't, it might be helpful as you read it. Um, he uses a literary device, which means as he's writing, he uses a, a pattern, a rhythm. And it kind of goes like this. He tells a little bit of story, 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 like history telling, story, 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 and then long speech. Acts chapter 1 and beginning of 2, story, 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 and then chapter 2 is this long speech from Peter. And then it's story, 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 and then we get to Acts chapter 7, long speech from Stephen. And then we have this next move. Right? And, and what Luke is trying to help us see is this movement of the gospel. It's kind of, here we are in Jerusalem, story, 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 boom, explosion. Story, 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 boom, explosion, right? Curtain closes of the just Jerusalem element of the gospel, the Christian, the church. Acts 1, Acts chapter 8 now, is the next, next movement of where the Holy Spirit is taking these Christians. Jesus knew what was going to happen here. He knew that persecution would come. And by his Spirit, he now, as they scatter, he sends them out. And this gospel spreads to many more, just as Jesus said it would. He told them, go to, to Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's going outward. That's the image here. Those words are places that would have been very familiar to those people as they're spreading outward. So the question I want us to start with is, who, who are these people that it's spreading to, and why is it significant? And I think there's a whole ton of significance about the who here. Because it doesn't make much sense to us sometimes when we lead, read a bunch of names in our Bible, right? If you read through a bunch of names, how, much you, how many of you read through a genealogy and you're like, okay, yeah, 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 and you skip through because the names don't mean anything to you, right? But if it was names of, like, politicians, you might know. You're like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or names of states, you're like, oh, I understand that's those East Coasters, those West Coasters, right? Like, you kind of have, like, we understand some uh, stereotypes, maybe, behind these things. And what's happening here is we have to look at the people here to understand why this might be significant. Samaria. How many of you know who the Samaritans were in our Bible? Okay, a few hands. Okay, great. It's okay if you don't. The Samaritans, um, just, this is an old, we've got to go back to our Old Testament because the, the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. They saw them as traitors. They despised them. They thought they were less than. They viewed them as like, they're dirty. Jews did not associate with Hang around with Samaritans. 
there's a big divide that happened, and we have to uncover the why. Because the why matters. Because this gospel is going now to the people that Jews hated and did not want to be near. But Jesus is going to them. So basically what happened was, in Israel's history, they became a kingdom. And, you know, you know, King Saul was the first king, and then it was King David. And lots of us have heard stories of King David. He wrote psalms, right? Most of the, many of the psalms are written from David. He was the great king of Israel, so to speak. And then after David, his son Solomon becomes king. But then after Solomon, Solomon has this really great, uh, uh, crazy career as a king. He's really wealthy. But then his son, Rehoboam, gets into power. And Rehoboam does not listen to good counsel. Rehoboam listens to his young buddies and says, you should extort all of them. Make them work even harder than than your father did. And he lords it over the people, and the people revolt. And there's this great civil war that happens. As people say, no, we're not going to follow you. And so then this nation divides, right? Civil war, pain, agony, division, split. And the people, there's Jerusalem was a couple of tribes, and then people to the north, where they had a capital city of Samaria. And what happens with those people is they take on, they get, they they create an idol, actually two idols, golden calves. If you know your Bible history, the fact that the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel, in his fear of losing his kingdom, creates two golden calves is really jarring because that's what they did in, in Exodus. It's crazy. Anyway, that's a side note. And they, what, So the main idea I'm trying to get to is the northern kingdom forsook God as their God out of fear of being their own people, they stopped being Jews. They stopped following Jesus. They stopped following God, sorry. Not Jesus. They didn't know Jesus yet. They stopped following God as their God. And what happened is over the years that not a single one of their kings ever lived up to what God wanted them to be. And eventually the kingdom of Assyria comes and, and, and um, destroys them and takes them away into exile. And what's left is the people that are part of that remnant intermix with other cultures and religions. And they become this people, the Samaritans, who were half Jews, but had adopted all these other religions. And those who remained faithful to God and called themselves Jews looked at the Samaritans and said, you traitors, you turned your back on God, you took the easy way out. And there's this, like, tension. Now, I'm not here to justify any actions between these two camps. There's a whole lot of mess on both sides. It's incredibly messy. My point here is to expose the tension between them that Jews felt towards Samaritans. They felt superior to them. And yet, this gospel that, of Jesus and his kingdom, his, the place where he reigns as king, is not just for these Jews, but it's for the Samaritans too. There's a story, um, you've all heard of the Watergate scandal, right? Watergate, uh, familiar uh, scandal in our political history. Um, it's about people who try to cover up uh, bugging you know, the other political party. Okay, so there's a guy in there, so um, his name is Chuck Colson, Charles Colson. He was one of those who was a part of this kind of corrupt political movement. 
And he was um, uh, Richard Nixon, who's, who's Richard Nixon was the president. Uh, Charles Colson was one of his advisors. And he was kind of like the eel henchman behind. He did all the dirty work. He did the things that were like, he was ruthless about competitors or opponents of uh, Nixon. He would say the worst stuff, and he made a list of all of it and all of why they're terrible people, right? Charles Colson was kind of this wreck, right? The evil mastermind I read about him. But what happened was, as the Watergate scandal kind of unfolded and this whole political uh, uh, party, like regime was like being uh, un unended, right? Uh, Charles Colson left out of fears and he's been uh, uh, indicted for being a part of this Watergate scandal. And he's faced with prison. And in that, as his life is falling apart, Charles Colson comes to faith. He comes to know Jesus. And I read about this story in a book called Seven Men by Eric Metaxas. And, and in this story, Charles Colson, as he comes to faith, he goes to this Bible study in Washington, D.C. with a bunch of other political people. And as he gets into this room with all these other po politicians, he notices people in the room who are of the other political party. And like I said, Charles Colson, ruthless about his opponents. And he walks into a Bible study with some of his opponents. And now he's there, united in Christ. And you would imagine the fear, like, oh my gosh, I said some terrible things about that person. But when he tells the story of a person who comes up to him and looks him in the eye and says, gives him a handshake and says, Charles, if there's anything I can do, I'm here for you. His enemy, the person he was ruthlessly uh, attacking, comes up to him and says, I'm here for you. And there's something about that story that just struck me. It was like, when, when we, we, have our, we have these divisions. We have people we're like opposed to. We have enemies. We wouldn't ever talk to them. But Jesus doesn't allow us to put up those walls. In fact, his gospel is for all people. His gospel is not just for you and the people you like and for those who you never knew, the strange on the other side. It's easy to say, yeah, they need Jesus. That's good, right? But for your enemy, those you are opposed, those you would never associate with, those you don't like, those you wish you don't, want, you don't talk to, this gospel is for them too. And what I love about this story, about Philip going to Samaria, is it's that he is going to the ones whom the Jews despised they would never associate with. But as we read this story, he doesn't say, like, Philip reluctantly, and doesn't even say that Philip found himself. He goes there. He literally, he deliberately goes to Samaria. And I wonder if he is going to the same city that Jesus went to. Because in John chapter 4, Jesus goes to a Samaritan town. In fact, he goes to a well outside of a Samaritan village, and he meets a woman at that well. You might be familiar with his story. Jesus is with a woman at the well. It's a Samaritan woman, someone who is despised. But not only despised as a Samaritan, she's seen as a woman, which at that time, unfortunately, wrongfully, were viewed as lesser, and um, men didn't talk to women. So now Jesus has got two things he would, shouldn't culturally do. He's breaking both of those. And on top of that, the third thing is that she is and someone who's married with five different husbands and with the man she's with now is she's not even married with. So this is six dude. So she's like bouncing around. Her life is a wreck. And she finds him herself 
at a well with Jesus. And Jesus knows and meets her there. His gospel is for the outcast. Right? And I think we know this. But sometimes I don't think we quite know how to apply it to the person we actually don't like, don't want to be around. This gospel is for that person. And what's beautiful about that John, John 4 story with the woman at the well is that's the first person that Jesus reveals his divinity to. He says, I am he, I am God. And then she's the first person whom he sends and she goes and bears witness of the gospel. It's a Samaritan woman who's had five divorces. This woman is Jesus' first missionary. He clearly is not worried about outcasts or a mess. His gospel is for all people. And that woman goes to her village and tells everyone, and they come and talk to him. It's like, now we know, we believe, not just on her, her testimony, but you, we see you. Like, these people, these Samaritans saw Jesus and they believed in him. But we don't know what happened after that. We don't know if they followed along and, and, and saw Jesus go to the cross and saw his resurrection. We don't know. But Philip goes to Samaria and who knows, maybe it's the same group of people. Maybe it's people who never heard, but maybe it's people who had heard about Jesus. And the verses, um, if you caught it, it, it totally looks like these people are like, as he, as he preaches to them, the Messiah, they're leaning in, they're listening, and they're watching Philip, per, uh, and he says, perform signs. Basically, he's healing people. And, and there's a lot there we could unpack, like demon, demon possession and... Uh, miraculous healings and stuff that are this, is that for us today? I absolutely do think so. But the question here that he's doing, what's happening here is Philip is meeting real needs of these people. There wasn't a lack of faith about this. These people recognized I, there's a demon in my kid. Something oppressing him. He keeps doing this. There's this person is paralyzed. And they're bringing their actual physical needs to Philip as he's proclaiming that Jesus is alive. And this gospel is, a, is about a kingdom that restores and makes things right. As he proclaims that message of Jesus, he's praying for them, and they're, they're being healed and restored. So he's preaching a message of restoration, and then they're receiving this message of restoration. He's preaching a message of Jesus is set you free, and then they're experiencing being set free. So however you want to perceive demon possession and miraculous things, the point here is that this gospel restores. This gospel brings peace. This gospel meets us right in our stuff, in our needs. And we all got needs tonight, and we know people who have needs. But are we willing to actually bring them out and bring them to Jesus and acknowledge, I need something, I'm messy, I'm broken, and I need him. And I think we fear of that, that risk there. We fear that risk of like actually acknowledging I, I need. I'm broken. Because we don't want to be let down, right? But this gospel is for you. And as Philip preaches this message to the Samaritans, they, they're leaning in. They're seeing what's happening. They're seeing their lives restored and they're seeing this gospel realized. They're seeing the truth of who Jesus is. It's not just the truth that's out there. This truth has come home to them. It's for you. What I love about the song we sang tonight, Christ is born for you. 
for you, for all people, and that means you too. This gospel is for all people. It's not just an American religion, right? It's Jewish. And then Samaria, and then ends of the earth. All people, every nation, every tribe and tongue. And it's a gospel of redemptive power, of healing power for us and our needs and our brokenness. He wants to set us free. He wants to make us whole. And Philip demonstrates beautifully how this gospel moves. Because he goes to the outcasts, but doesn't treat them as, as outcasts, does he? He treats them as co-heirs in Christ. He treats them as those worthy of receiving this gospel. And that's what we can do. We can join Philip and join Jesus in participating in his gospel that goes and that brings healing and redemptive, life-changing liberty. My point here is not to say, like, the burden is on you. you got to go and do it. Because that's not the point. It's about Jesus. My point is that he, that's who he is. We know the one who is able. We know the one who wants to bring our world into wholeness. And Advent is all about us longing, anticipating for him to come and do it. And as he comes, the result of his coming is healing, restoration, wholeness, joy. We see that last line in verse 8. There was great joy in the city. There was great joy in that city because the gospel had come home to them and met them right where they are and met their real needs. Joy is a a word we often use and associate with Christmas, right? This reminds me of the Christmas story, Luke chapter 2. When the, well, probably familiar with the scene, the shepherds are out in their fields, at flocks at night, and then the angel comes and says, and they're like all afraid, and they said, "Don't be afraid. Behold, I give you good news, of great joy for all people. The Savior has been born. Great joy. The Savior is for you. This story of Christmas is about joy." And this joy is yours. It's for us. Right? It's, joy is yours because his kingdom is a kingdom of peace. His joy is yours. Yeah, I want to read these. His joy is yours because his gospel is peace. Joy is yours because his kingdom brings wholeness. Joy is yours because Jesus brings freedom from chains. Joy is yours because he is our perfect Savior, the one perfectly suited to save us from what enslaves us. Joy is yours because Jesus came and is near. Jesus is a source of our joy. And as we experience his gospel and experience his coming, we too will experience joy. Joy that doesn't make sense when we're in the midst of the darkest days, but joy because we know that our God is near and he's going to make all things new. And I started by talking about Advent. Advent is not just the celebration that he came, but it's the longing that he'll come again 
and make it all new. And tonight as we're talking about joy, some, I don't know about you, I've heard many messages on joy. And I've had lots of days where I've wanted joy, but I haven't experienced it. And it can be something that we kind of put on the shelf because like our longing for joy is there, but it's, it's kind of risky to like actually hope for joy. Because what if it doesn't come? Or what if it shatters? What if I'm let down? What if I keep asking and it just never comes? And there's a riskiness of hoping that joy will come to you. But I want I want it tonight. I want to encourage you to be risky with him. Put your heart out there with Jesus. Because as he meets you, he will bring joy. Joy will come. If you're going through crazy things, rough things, painful things, he wants to meet you in that. He wants to bring restoration, hope, wholeness. And it might not just be right, it might not come today. It might not come for uh, a month or, or two months or a year, whatever. But like he wants to bring joy. That's what he does. His kingdom is a kingdom of restoration and healing and great joy. And it's for you. And I would encourage you to open your heart and hope. Hope a little bit more. Hope with a risky faith that his joy will come to you. But the other side of this is this relationship between the Jews and Samaritans, right? Because Philip goes to his enemies, those who are despised among his people. But we have no sense that he views them in any, any uh, uh, inferior way. He treats them with dignity and honor as he preaches the gospel to them. Right? He sees them not as outcasts, but as co-heirs. Right? He sees that the love of Christ is for all people, even his enemies. But it begs the question, are there people that we don't really want to give this gospel of joy to. Maybe you know the first part of joy received for you. Maybe you know that, and you're living that, and you're experiencing his joy. But maybe there's people in your life that you haven't even considered giving joy to because you don't really want to associate with them. And what if they actually come and be a part of this community? And you wouldn't like that because you don't like them. But this gospel is for them. This gospel is for all people. If it's for you, then it's for your enemy. And as we go into this last final weeks, I would encourage you to think about the people that you didn't necessarily want to give the gospel to or want to see, receive this joy. But this joy is for all people. Be okay with joy coming to those you wouldn't associate with. So here's how I want us to end. I want us to end with some, uh, one, a, a moment of reflection, but then I want us to break into small groups as usual and discuss these kind of these two ideas, right? These two responses. One, having hope, a riskiness that his joy is going to come to you. And I want, I want to dialogue about that. What do you think about that? Is that, is that easy for you? Is that something you're like, I don't really know? Or I, I have you, you maybe you have a story about how that you did experience that or a story of a letdown. Then discuss that, sure. But then the second one is this idea of being glad for joy to come to those you dislike. 
Can you be glad to see those you didn't want to receive joy, receive joy? Cool. So I'm going to pray, and I want to give you a minute to examine your own heart on these two concepts and then turn to those around you and discuss these for a minute. Jesus, thank you for your coming. Thank you that you came. We know, we know that you are here. That you left your home. Just like Philip left home in the midst of uh, his comfort. He was, being, he was made uncomfortable. And he left his home and went to those who were not his friends. And he preached your gospel to them in the same way you left your home. You came to a people not your own the people who were your enemy. And you preach this gospel to us. Thank you for coming. And thank you that this gospel sets us free, gives us hope. Thank you that your gospel gives joy to us. Help us to risk a little bit more in hoping for your joy to come to us. And help us, Lord, to examine our hearts in the ways in which we might not want joy to come to others. Forgive us when we do, Lord. Help us to be part of your kingdom movement as it spreads, not only as we see it in Acts, but here on our campus and in our city, that this joy of yours would spread across our city. In Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Instagram at MilwaukeeXA to keep up to date on our events and services. Or stop by Bolton Hall Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. in room B40.